Because once again, this afternoon, we are going to be turning ourselves to the Second London Baptist Convention, con- Confession, once again, as Pastor Nick just mentioned. Uh, so not an exegetical sermon this afternoon where we'll take a text of the Bible and look at that. But again, we're still working on introduction on this confession of faith that we are, Lord willing, are looking to announce that we've adopted as our church con- uh, confession and doctrinal statement here in just uh, maybe perhaps even next week. So uh, last time I attempted to um, answer the question, why confessionalism? We're just scratching the surface with that. And I know that there are all kinds of questions that come considering a a confession like the London Baptist Confession, like what, what about the Sabbath? Is the Pope really the Antichrist? What about elect infants? Those are generally the, the three main areas that tend to get questions. And you're going to notice in the confession itself that those things are stated much later in the confession. So as we go through this, what we want to do is train ourselves to consider or to not consider each article in isolation from one another. What we want to do is train ourselves to read the confession kind of left from right. That's what Dr. Renahan states. Um, this, he's recently released... A commentary on the second line of confession. It's this book here. It's excellent. Uh, this is, there's a few of these out there now. There's one by Sam Waldron. There's another one that was just released and published by Mentor Publishing. But this one from Renahan is really interesting, really edifying. As he, he painstakingly goes back to the original sources in many ways. Helps us see what the people of that time who drafted the confession were thinking when they were writing things. So I'd, I'd commend this book to you. But one of the things that he says is that we need to learn to read the confession, not simply from start to finish, but also left to right. And that's because the confession is not like a bag of confetti, uh, disjointed and disconnected from each other, all thrown into a bag and to be and then individually taken out or ordered at will. What it is, is more like an organic body of unity. It's vitally connected, organically connected to one another, such that later doctrines are going to depend upon earlier doctrines. So again, there may be some of you, for instance, who want to know what the whole Sabbath thing is about. Well, there's a lot more questions that we have to answer and build upon early on in our study and confession before we get to that conversation, if that conversation is going to really be fruitful and helpful. And so for the sake of your own curiosity being satisfied, I'm going to be encouraging you to take patience with those types of questions. Be patient with our time. We're going to take lots of time to go all the way through this document. And we're just kind of building categories, strengthening categories, so that those later conversations will perhaps help us to more easily understand these areas that sometimes believers have sincere questions about. And then they'll be more profitable when we get to that. But this afternoon, we're still dealing with introduction. I I think this will be the last time where we have introduction to the confession. Then next time, Lord willing, we'll be able to start getting to the meat of it. But last time was why confessionalism. This afternoon, what I'm wanting to attempt to communicate is the what of confessionalism. And with a special focus on the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, because that's the one that we are holding here at this church. So I wanted to begin by making us think of how we read the Bible. There's at least at least three ways that we do this, even if we're not aware of us doing this as we come to the text of Scripture. One of the ways that we do that is that we read God's Word chronologically. That is, that we read the Bible from as the story of creation all the way to consummation. It's all true history. It's redemptive history. In other words, it's God revealing who to us who He is and of His will for salvation in light of the covenants that he's made with humanity. So we might call this biblical theology and that it retraces themes throughout the Bible as they develop from creation to consummation, from creation to recreation, and from beginning to end. We went over many of those elements when we preached through the catechism last year, actually. And so we can read the Bible chronologically. But secondly, we could also read it ethically. Uh, Reading the Bible chronologically is asking, what is God doing? And then a reading of the Bible ethically is essentially asking, what does God want me to do? What is God's requirement for his creation? And the Bible calls us to live holy lives. And so when we read the Bible this way, we're thinking and we're asking essentially, what is God commanding of me? 
What is he demanding of us? And, what are, and here we are especially benefited by a right understanding of the law-gospel distinction. We might call this, for instance, pastoral theology or practical theology. You know, what are the implications of the doctrines that are contained within the Bible itself? What are the commands that I find there? And what exactly is God demanding from me in his word? Is he demanding something at all? You know, that's pastoral or practical theology. So we read the Bible chronologically. We can read it ethically. But thirdly, we can read the Bible theologically. A theological reading of the Bible is ultimately concerned with what it is that we are to believe. I've mentioned this before, perhaps maybe it's on a Wednesday evening, but sometimes the best application we can take from a text of Scripture is not to do this, but it's believe this. And that's what we're talking about when we speak of a theological reading of the Bible. It's talking about revelation, the knowledge of God and His will for salvation, which of course the latter is not found in nature, but only through special revelation. William Perkins defined theology as the science of living blessedly forever. And so in light of that, we might say that a theological reading of Scripture lies at the intersection of receiving revealed Bible doctrines and rightly understanding them in light of each other. And when we consider what a confession is, what we're ultimately considering is this third category, this third reading, that is a theological reading of the Bible. What is it that I should believe? Or better, what is it that God wants me to believe? It's a summary of our credos, what we talked about last time, what we believe. And well, any confession, and especially the confession that we are considering, that is the Second London Confession, it is the result, ultimately, of a theological reading of the Bible. Now, it doesn't necessarily quote Scripture verbatim, which is actually a good thing because anyone could do that and then leave interpretation open and and insight into some mysterious categories. But what it does do is it summarizes what the Bible teaches on specific subjects. Sometimes it may be explicit in in speaking the same way that the Bible speaks, but other times it might draw out of necessary consequence (coughs) what the Bible is communicating. And as far as it infers certain doctrines from the Bible, it draws logical connections to other doctrines. And so really it is a, it's a systematic approach to looking at the theology of the Bible. Now, some might object. Some might say, you know, I just want to study the Bible. I just want to know what the Bible says. You can forget all of this doctrine stuff. But like I mentioned last time, we can't study the Bible without drawing theological conclusions. It's impossible. It's an impossible task to think that you could do that. We can't study the Bible without affirming doctrine. Everyone has credo statements. So the question is not whether or not we are doctrinal people or not. The question is whether or not our doctrine is sound or not. Whether or not it is healthy or not. Whether or not it is truly derived from God's word or not. But all of us, at the end of the day, when we open up our Bibles, read it, we aim to interpret it and apply it, we are are setting ourselves to the task of theology. And a confession is ultimately that. Again, it's a theological reading of the Bible. So a confession recognizes the truth, and theology naturally comes before action. That's why a confession, first of all, is theological and not ethical, Truth comes before action. Doctrine informs duty. And if we fail to understand this, then we're going to be severely limited and hindered in our pursuit of godliness. If if we don't know who God is, then our worship will be idolatry. If we don't understand his will for salvation, then our gospel will be false. So the confession is ultimately concerned with a certain kind of knowledge It's concerned with a theological knowledge and a doctrinal knowledge from the apostles, referred to objectively as, quote, the faith. Subjectively, of course, faith is the act of resting in Christ, just as we received him, by faith. Faith alone is the instrumental cause of our justification and salvation. But objectively speaking, 
It's the content of the faith, the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints that the confession is seeking to elaborate upon. As Jude 3 says, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The study of confessions, then, is what has historically been referred to as symbolics. It's called symbolics because a confession symbolizes the Christian faith. Now, of course, a symbol, it's not the totality of a thing, right? A symbol isn't the totality of the thing that it is symbolizing. It is, a, it is in some a miniature form or a summary of things. So when we talk about something being a symbol, we're not saying that the thing itself embodies the totality of the thing. In this case, the confession does not embody the totality of God's word. But it's to say that it's a summary, in essence, of that thing. And so the confession is a symbol of the Christian faith, the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't address everything the Bible teaches, but it does address the most essential and important things. And those essential and important things are able, by implication, to help us think well (coughs) about the things that the confession itself doesn't actually address. It gives us a framework for thinking theologically, for, for reading our Bible theologically, for thinking rightly about doctrine. Now, some of you might object if you weren't here last time or you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, and you might say, well, listen, uh, when we come to the Bible, if we're reading it theologically, aren't we then imposing our frameworks on the Bible? Aren't we supposed to just take the Bible as it is and then do our best to interpret it? And then, you know, do doctrine from that. I would argue just a handful of things here. Uh, First of all, like I said last time, none of us are actually able to do that, to, to come to the Bible without any presuppositions. All of us bring frameworks to the Bible. Those frameworks are either known or they're unknown. They're either explicit or they are implicit. But all of us have frameworks. And those frameworks are ultimately going to be brought to bear upon the Bible. So if anyone comes to you, for example, as like a Bible-believing evangelical who has been regenerated by the grace of God to believe in the one true God through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who happens to be, of course, both truly man and truly God, and yet one person, with that basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian, you're actually bringing all kinds of assumptions to the Bible. You're saying that, I can understand all of this, first off, because I've been given the Holy Spirit. And there is such a person, even, as the Holy Spirit. And that person is the same as the one true God, equal in essence and being. Not only that, but I can understand this because wherever I am in the Bible, it's connected to the whole rest of the Bible. And that's because even though the Bible has human authors that write different (coughs) books, it ultimately has one author. God is the author of Scripture. So do you see what I'm saying? That that when we come to the Bible, any act of interpretation has with it all sorts of presuppositions, all kinds of commitments that we bring to the Bible, whether we know it or not. And so the question is, are our commitments good commitments? Are they sound and biblical commitments? Are our frameworks good commitments or are they bad? Are we imposing things on the Bible that are not in the Bible? Or are the things that we're bringing to the Bible for faithful theological interpretation, are they things that are already in the Bible? In other words, is our doctrine come from the Bible? And then do we bring it back to the Bible to better understand the Bible? That's what a confession aims to do. It takes doctrine (laughs) from the Bible and then seeks to look at the Bible through that lens that the Bible provides for us. It's from the Scriptures, so that we might bring it back to the Scriptures and read the Bible with theological eyes. Hopefully that makes sense. It's to say that confession is ultimately concerned with theological knowledge. Now that being said, the confession is going to function in no less than three ways. Any confession does this really, First of all, it's going to function as a kind of passport. Okay, a confession, a church's confession of faith will function as a sort of a passport. That is, that it publicly announces and summarizes, and summarizes that believers have certain rights and privileges. 
It protects our citizenship. It is saying, in essence, that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And what I enjoy by virtue of my citizenship are the truths, rights, obligations, and responsibilities which I possess in this kingdom are symbolized here in the confession. This is how I'm to live and to believe concerning my citizenship. In that way, a confession aims to operate in the same way that our passports would. That when we take our passport to another um, country and we show it to the guy at the gate, it lets him know explicitly, publicly, this is who we are, where we're from, and what we're about. And a confession operates in that same sort of way. Secondly, it operates as a kind of security guard. It's a, it's a sort of defense mechanism. It keeps out false gospels. It keeps out false Christians by helping us to summarize sound doctrine. And this is especially helpful for elders. The Apostle Paul tells Titus, in Titus 1.9, that elders are to teach with what accords to sound doctrine. And then they are to rebuke and correct that which contradicts it. But, but what is sound doctrine? Paul doesn't then just go off and list what sound doctrine is right at that, at that point. And this is, you know, what kind of conclusions do we reach about that to determine whether something is sound or not? And this is such a blessing, actually, for us in the Christian faith. And again, it didn't start five minutes ago. It didn't start five years ago. It didn't start 50 years ago. We don't need to be so arrogant to believe that it's left to us alone. It's not about us, the spirit, and silence to figure out what is right. No, we are actually a part of a millennia-old church where each person who is saved has the exact same Holy Spirit within them, where each has been able to prayerfully labor in the, in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, considering who God is and what God's will is for salvation. And we shouldn't neglect that. We want to do theology with the church, not just our own church, but the church invisible, the church universal, that God's people have been around for so long. Uh, we should want to interpret the Bible with the church, and confessions help us to do that. It helps us, again, to keep out false gospels. It helps us to keep out false Christians for the sake of the purity and the unity of the membership of the church. Or to use another analogy, it protects the body of Christ from disease. But thirdly, it doesn't just function as a passport or a security guard, but it also functions as a bonding agent as well. It unites Christians both across time and region. It connects Christians to other Christians and to other churches and other places at other times even. And it helps us to answer the question, what have Christians believed? Past tense. Not just what do I believe, but what have Christians believed? Present tense, what have you know, Christians believed? Not just me and my church, but all Christians around the world and Christians throughout the ages. I want you to consider you know, how one day, when all those geographic and chronological differences are going to disappear when Christ appears again, and how a good confession allows us in some way to enter into that reality today, that we are confessing what faithful and true Christians and churches have confessed around the world and throughout the ages until Christ returns. And that brings us to the, to the three C's of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the theological identity of it. <coughs> it, it moves us from ambiguity, ambiguity to clarity from being implicit to being explicit. And it does so in at least three ways. I'm only mentioning three for the sake of time this afternoon. But first of all, it's creedal. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, is creedal. And that is to say that it is orthodox. We're not making this up as we go along. That's, that's the point of that. And all we're saying in many respects is what Christians throughout the centuries have said, confessed, and believed. In this regard, you know, we're historic as well. That's why every faithful and good confession has the language of the ecumenical creeds built into it. They're, they're, the language of those creeds are embedded into any good confession. 
the Belgic Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the First and Second London Baptist Confession, they all do this. The Nicene Creed, considering God as Holy Trinity. The Athanasian Creed, concerning the person and nature of Jesus Christ as, as God's incarnate Son, as well as elements of the Apostles' Creed, are all found in a good confession. They're all found in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, a creed and a confession, they're, they're not the exact same thing. But if we think about how they relate, we might say that the confessions elaborate upon the creeds. They make them more explicit from the teaching of Scripture and for the sake of articulating the gospel and organizing life together as churches, the same things that creeds also affirm. Creeds aren't necessarily a confession, but every confession should have the creeds embedded in them. And the Second London Confession does this. It is self-consciously saying, we're not making this up as we go along. This you know, didn't start not only five years, five minutes ago, five years ago, or 50 years ago. This didn't start in the 17th century either. It's much older than that. We are part of a historic faith church, a body that traces its roots to the author of our faith, to Christ Jesus. If this isn't something like what the Mormons believe. It's not something that came by virtue of a new revelation. No, it's something that is old and unchanging and has been confessed by the saints across centuries. Secondly, it's not only creedal or orthodox, it's also covenantal. Uh, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith is covenantal, which is to say reformed. What we're saying essentially is that it gives us definable, a definable formed identity which is covenantal. And by that, we mean, by that covenantal, we mean that Scripture shows us that God deals with all men, with all of mankind, by the way of covenant. All men everywhere, at any time, are either in Adam, according to the broken covenant of works, the covenant that God made with Adam in the <coughs> garden, of which he was our federal head, our covenantal representative, and of course he violated that covenant, he sinned, and that brought to himself and all his posterity death, and it brought them into a state of sin. Or those who are elect, who will at some point be in Christ through the covenant of grace, which was promised in the Old Testament, carried along as shadows and types, and then finally revealed and established in the New Testament. All mankind is either in one of those two covenants, the covenant of works with Adam as a federal head, or the covenant of grace with Christ as a federal head. Everyone who has salvation is said to no longer be in Adam, but in Christ, Romans 5. And thirdly, a person's place in those covenants has relation to the covenant between the triune God, a, a pact, the, the pactum salutis, uh, that, that agreement and plan of God to redeem sinners from the curse and guilt brought about in Adam and to save them in the person and the work of Christ. The Father chooses, the Son atones for, and the Spirit applies that atonement in time for those that the Father chose. <coughs> Thirdly, it's Calvinistic. That is to say, it's predestinarian. The London Baptist Confession of Faith is creedal, covenantal, Calvinistic. And again, to say Calvinistic, really what we're thinking here is to say predestinarian. That in our understanding of salvation and the understanding of the confession and when it relates to salvation, it is setting itself against an Arminian understanding of salvation regarding the will, regarding salvation, and regarding man's role in salvation. It's saying that the Bible's covenant theology informs the doctrine of salvation. That all humans are totally depraved. Not one aspect of humanity remains uncorrupted by the fall, including our wills. But rather than allowing humanity to die in their sin, God unconditionally chose an eternity past to save a definite number of people for salvation. God alone knows. And it was for these that Christ willingly obeyed the covenant of redemption and laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And now, that through this gospel and good news promised in the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in the New Testament, and by it, God calls all men everywhere to repentance and faith in Christ, and yet 
He effectually calls His elect by His Holy Spirit so that we might respond to the Gospel with regenerated hearts. The same Holy Spirit now unites us to Christ, seals us for the day of redemption, and causes us to persevere in a way that we might get safely home to Jesus at the end. All of these blessings are merits that Jesus Christ purchased for us through the covenant of redemption, and then he applied to us in the covenant of grace. Predestinarian, or the Calvinistic doctrine of salvation, is ultimately rooted in covenant theology. And so the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is creedal, covenantal, and Calvinistic, among other things. Well, why are these things important? Why is a theological identity important? Number one, uh, for the sake of the truth. We live in a world in the West in the 21st century that is an evangelical culture of least common denominator, uh, doctrinally speaking, at least. And we've been persuaded over the course of the decades to believe that this unity is best served by finding the least common theological denominator. And I say it plainly, this is bad. This has left the church in the West in the 21st century in many ways in anemic and sick conditions. You know, this idea that that what is the very least that we could agree on and there's our, our unity. I want to submit to you that that has not served us well. All manner of error concerning God, the person and work of Jesus, the relationship between the Father and the Son, or you know, consider anthropology and the mess that we have in our culture today with that. What does it even mean to be a person made in his image? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? Or assaults against the gospel, whether it be the word of faith or some version of the prosperity gospel or soft prosperity gospel or work salvation or lordship salvation or whatever it may be. None of these things have served us well. Doctrinal minimalism has not served us well. In fact, it's only served to weaken the defenses in the local church in such a way that all manner of error might come in. (coughs) And the end of it is division and immaturity. And so we look around at our churches and we wonder, why is there so much biblical illiteracy? Why is there so much doctrinal illiteracy? And we say that out of one side of our mouth, and yet with the other side of the mouth, we say, well, we don't want to be too doctrinal, and we don't want to be too biblical because that's too narrow and doctrine divides. Do you see the inconsistency there? That's how many people in our culture tend to think. And I want to argue that doctrine, in fact, does not divide, but doctrine unites. And I think that's what the apostles understood. That's why they labored to teach according to sound doctrine that churches might be united in sound doctrine. That's why Jesus, if you note in the gospel accounts, he's always teaching doctrine. The the parables even, they weren't some little filler story like we hear in many pulpits across uh, the West today. They were stories that proposed to teach doctrine. So it's for the sake of the truth, friends. But second, it's also for the sake of cooperation, that it gives us a framework for cooperation with other churches for the sake of the gospel. The original goal of the confession, if you read the opening statement to it, it has it here in in this book as as well. It probably has it in the copy that we have back there, but I'm not 100% 100 sure. But the opening letter to it, the, uh, the opening address in it, before it actually gets to the first doctrinal statement, the second line or the second sentence, it notes that, it was written to allow churches to identify with one another and to be explicit about agreements or dissensions and knowing where they agreed to cooperate together for the work of the gospel. Again, the doctrinal statements like this, they're not created to divide, they're created to unite. You know, when it comes to agreement on who God is and what God has done to save sinners and his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be lockstep with those churches uh, that, that confess the truth as it is in Christ, that don't shy away from the whole counsel of God's word. We, we can work together. But how do you do that if you can't define what the gospel is, or who God is, or what a church is, or what a Christian is? 
Well, in order to do that, you have to have a confession to summarize the Bible's teaching on these issues so that you might be more equipped and able and ready for healthy cooperation. And thirdly, it's for the sake of Catholicity, small c. It allows for the recognition of orthodox nature of other congregations, even those with whom disagreements might exist. We disagree with a whole host of secondary and tertiary issues with other churches here in town or with some of the churches represented at the pastor's fraternal that we go to in Sacramento. And yet we're able to say with those churches, despite our disagreements, that they are true churches. They are for God and they're for the gospel, his gospel. And insofar as they are for God and for the gospel, we are for them. Good? I'm sorry, you know, it's not me this time while I'm talking, at least. I'm happy about that. But I'm sorry, sister, I know that that is is rough. So, there are other churches in our city, other churches around the world, and other churches throughout the ages that by holding to a, a good, robust confession like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, we are making ourselves to be able to have cooperation with them, where they could tell exactly what it is that we are like in a large, substantial way, and we could do the same to them, depending on their doctrinal statement being substantial as well. So it helps to guard a confession like the Second London Confession. It helps to guard against the consumer-driven church culture that dominates our age. It helps us to be lockstep with other churches who are serious about the gospel as well. But now, let's think specifically about the Second London Baptist Confession and the history of, it, of the confession. <clears throat> I think that's important to know. You know how, how did this document come about? Where did it come from? And after all, it's called the Second London Baptist Confession, so that implies something, doesn't it? Uh, there was a first. There was another London Baptist Confession, a first one. And it was written about 30 years earlier in 1644. Uh, seven particular Baptist congregations were growing, but attitudes toward these Baptist churches were hostile. And so in 1642, two years prior to the first confession being published, a pamphlet had appeared in London, and it was concerning events in Germany under the activities of this group of Christians that identified themselves as the Anabaptists, the the re-baptizers. And the pamphlet was describing all of the dangerous anarchy and doctrinal pervasion of the Anabaptists. The warning was, beware, what was done in Germany by the Anabaptists is going to happen again here in London if Baptist theology is likely to spread. But it wasn't just Anabaptists in England. They were particular Baptists there as well, too. And they knew they were being misrepresented. They weren't Anabaptists at all. And Anabaptists would actually find their alignment more closely today with the Quakers or the modern Pentecostal movement, whereas that is not the history of the majority of the Baptist denominations in England or here in the United States at all. Our roots are more closely lined with that of the Reformation and congregational bodies. It's not the same as the Anabaptists. And so the particular Baptists knew that they were being misrepresented. So they needed to demonstrate that they were actually orthodox in their beliefs. Do they have an agenda besides faithfulness to God's word? And so one motivation for the first London Baptist Confession of 1644 was to distinguish themselves from the continental Anabaptists, from those who believed that according to an inner light that they could receive additional revelation from God according to the Spirit. And these Many of them were radical anarchists as well. There's even a record of Anabaptists running naked down the street prophesying. We're not them. But even so, even though they tried to align themselves with the puritanical convictions of those around them, very few parliamentary Presbyterians were for religious toleration at that time, which is to say then that they were still opposed to these particular Baptists. And so the First London Confession of Faith wasn't met with a very large reception. Fast forward to 1646, 
really 1647, and the Westminster Confession of Faith is published, and it becomes really, I think we could say, the standard of all Puritan theology. Um, in, in light of especially both of what Rome was teaching and the Anglican Church, the Church of England. But then in 1658, well-known pastors, theologians, these names might be familiar to some of you, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin, both of whom were pedobaptists in their theology, they end up meeting in a, town of, in a town of Savoy to consider the Westminster Confession of Faith in light of their own congregational convictions. In other words, they agreed with almost everything the Westminster Confession of Faith said, but they just didn't really agree the way that they were organizing their churches. Uh, you know, for them, it would be something like, yes, sure, your churches connect to one another, but their belief was that churches should be autonomous. And so what they did in the Savoy Declaration is they modified a few articles in the Westminster, and then they added an appendix to it called the Platform of Polity to talk about the way a church should be organized. They didn't feel that ecclesiology was so important to put it into the confession. They put it in an appendix to the confession. So an appendix, a few minor changes to the larger, larger body of doctrine, and they call it the Savoy Declaration. But then, fast forward a little bit further, you have 1677. And a group of scholars, of particular Baptist scholars and pastors, gathered and they formed in that same stream of thought of Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. They took the foundational doctrines of the First London Confession. They took the Westminster Confession of Faith. They took the Savoy Declaration of Congregationalism and they created from it, from those three documents essentially, with the Bible open in the original Greek and Hebrew and commentaries that were popular in today, certainly. From all of that, they formed the Second London Confession of Faith. And so the Second London Confession is essentially the, <coughs> excuse me, the grandchild of the Westminster Confession of Faith via the Savoy Declaration. But because of hostility towards the Baptists, the document wouldn't be formally recognized and established until 1689, hence the reason that many people call it the 1689 Confession, hence the reason you know, Joe Thorne is going to come speak at Emmanuel Baptist Church, the conference the ladies were just at this past weekend. He's going to be one of the speakers for the Gospel Conference. He has 1689, like, I think, tattooed on his hand. But the reason why so many people think call the Baptist Second London Confession the 1689 Confession is because that was when it was formally put out and recognized, but really the date of this confession goes back to 1677. Later on, the confession would come to America. It was modified a bit to reflect a position on singing uninspired songs, on congregational singing, the singing of hymns, and on the laying of, on of hands during baptism, as well as foot washing. It became known as the Philadelphia Confession, and it was actually printed by, uh, first printed, I believe, by Benjamin Franklin. Those two points on congregational singing and foot washing and the laying on hands, they're not in the Second London Confession, of course. But you see now what they're trying to do in light of the hostility that they were facing, I hope. They wanted to separate themselves from the radical Anabaptists and to show themselves as being largely in keeping with sound and orthodox doctrine. They aligned themselves as much as it was possible to be, biblically speaking, with the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they were sympathetic to congregational polity as well which is why the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is something like 90% identical with the Westminster Confession of Faith, especially all the way up until the end when you get to how churches are to be organized. It was for the sake of unity. It was to say, listen, we're with you guys. We're not radical, unorthodox gospel deniers seeking to deny and undermine the, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In fact, we agree with you guys on the vast majority of the things but here, here's where we differ from you so that you can know where we differ from you and you can know where we agree. We confess what you confess, though we might just disagree on secondary important issues concerning how to organize our churches, and who, which would include, of course, then who should be baptized. But it was nearly identical for the sake of unity, for Catholicity. So that's the short history. You can get more on it quite easily but I wanted to give you a little bit of the context of the Second London Confession's origin. It was for the sake of aligning themselves with other faithful churches in spite of secondary disagreements, which is the same reason that I think 
we should hold to it as well. And every Baptist church should as well in, in that regard. <coughs> Next, I wanted to consider the structure of the confession. When we open it up, what does it, when, when, we, when we look at it, does it have a discernible structure? Can we divide the chapters into larger categories? Well, Dr. James Renahan, again, this book here, he's the president, by the way, of International Reformed Baptist Seminary, the seminary that we partnered with recently to help train up ministers, and that gives us access to ministerial training for you all as well, if that's something that you're interested in. But Dr. Renahan is, is arguably the foremost living expert on the Second London Confession, and he provides a helpful outline for us in his commentary. He divides the confession into four sections. First, he has first principles, and that would cover chapters one through six. That's where we'll be beginning next time, Lord willing. That includes scripture, the doctrine of God and creation. Uh, that is, these things that, that Christians have always believed through the ages. Think really, you know, that creedal category that I mentioned earlier. But then, beginning in chapter seven, we have the second section, and it's the longest section in the confession. Dr. Renahan calls it the covenant. And it's those doctrines then which are fundamentally evangelical. And specifically, they are reformed Protestant in their nature concerning the covenant. The covenant mediator, that is Christ, and what it is that he did to come to establish the new covenant. And there is even a chapter on the, on the will called of the free will. But I want you to notice two sections as well. These don't follow the normal way of the Ordo Salutis. Now that is the order of salvation. It's organized a little bit differently here in the confession. Why is that? Well, this goes back to a, puristanic, a puritanical understanding of doctrine. So we have covenant blessings in chapter 10 through 13 that include effectual calling, justification, sanctification, and adoption. And, and what is true of all those four doctrines is that they concern what God himself accomplishes in us through the covenant in Christ. There's no cooperation with our actions on our part. These are simply the blessings and benefits that we receive by faith. God is the one who does them. But then notice in chapters 14 to 18, what we have are called covenant graces. And these are our responses to the blessings that we receive through faith, which is repentance, good works, perseverance, and then assurance are those four chapters. And then finally, in that section, we have the means of receiving the covenant in chapters 19 and 20, specifically the law and the gospel side by side. The Westminster actually doesn't have chapter 20. That was added by the Savoy, and it was followed, I think wisely, by the particular Baptists as well. And that takes us then to the third section, which Dr. Renahan calls God-centered living, freedom and boundaries. And this is really important, friends. This is a really major and important benefit of the Second Line of Confession. So after setting forth who God is and how God saves, <coughs> the confession then turns to the Christian life. And the first section of, of the first chapter of this section, which essentially informs the whole section, is about Christian liberty, which I find to be a bit ironic, actually. You know, many people look at a confession of faith this large with so many particular details and they assume that it's too stringent, that it doesn't leave enough freedom, that it's too binding. But the confession itself, almost a third of it, is concerned with and promoting and guarding Christian liberty. In fact, the Puritans believed that every church and every pastor had two main jobs, two primary responsibilities to promote and guard the gospel, and to promote and guard Christian liberty. So everything that we see that follows, beginning in chapter 21, all the way through 30, it concerns the Christian life in the church, in culture related to civil government, in our families, and much more. And it's all aimed to only bind us where God's word binds us. But then to grant to, act, to, to grant freedom wherever God's word grants freedom. Because here's the reality. Wherever there is doctrinal ambiguity, there will almost always be the evil binding of consciences. 
whenever there is doctrinal ambiguity, whenever things are not left said, when they're left and things are left unsaid, there will always be some private confession somewhere, <coughs> usually by the pastors who preach or who act themselves as if their own ideas are the, the standard, as if they themselves are a living and walking confession, wherever those doctrines are not explicitly made. And you will have consciences tyrannized and bound to things that God does not bind them to. It never leads to Christian, greater Christian freedom. Being ambiguous here never leads to greater Christian freedom. It always leads to less because there's something in our own nature that longs for control, that longs for black and white, that longs for clear answers, that isn't willing to let us navigate the gray areas of life according to Christian freedoms that are granted in God's word. There is always the inclination of the human heart to be that way. And the confession aims not to bind or to overly bind, but instead to grant as much freedom as the Bible is willing to grant. So, for instance, some people look at it and they say, well, well, here, you know, it has something on the Sabbath, and that is binding or legalistic in the way that the Bible isn't, legal, isn't legalistic. But there's another way to look at it. It is also to say, for instance, and, you know, we're going to get to the Sabbath many, many months <coughs> from now, after we've already done the legwork and the foundation building to get there. But it's to say that being here in the context of Christian liberty and freedom, that no pastor or no church has the freedom to bind its members to any other days of the week, such that if you're not here on a Tuesday night, for example, then we'll put you under church discipline. You're free to come. You're free to go. You're, you're free to not gather six days without any judgment without anybody thinking less of you in that, that is your freedom given to you by God in Christ. You're free to act with wisdom to be here or not. And we cannot bind you where the Bible doesn't bind you. The confession's aim is only to bind where the Bible binds, but to grant freedom where the Bible does not bind or where the Bible grants freedom. Because if there's anything that churches and even pastors, even perhaps pastors with the best intentions that are, they're prone to do, is to bind where the Bible doesn't bind and to grant freedom where the Bible doesn't grant freedom or limit freedom where the Bible doesn't limit freedom. Just ask anyone who's had any experience with an IFB church, an independent fundamental Baptist church. That's what happens. The, the confession is primarily concerned with only binding where God binds and giving freedom wherever God gives freedom. Every good confession and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, I think, is the best. It will promote and guard Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. The final section of the confession, Dr. Renahan titles, The World to Come, is chapters 31 and 32, and it looks to the future of both believers and unbelievers. It deals with matters of eschatology. So that's just a, a brief outline of the structure. And over the coming months, we're going to look at each of them line by line, but I want you to see that they're, they're not just an individual collection of doctrines that just fall together without any logic or without any structure. It's a body of divinity, and they all have logical relationship to one another. Some are more important than others. I think we could say that. Just like some body parts are more important than other body parts, and yet all of it is organically connected. And to close this afternoon, I wanted us to think about how we subscribe to the confession and then next time, again, Lord willing, we'll get to the content of the confession. But to close, how should we think of subscribing or holding to the confession? Because that should matter to us as, as members of a church. What, what is our philosophy here? Honestly, this can be somewhat difficult and a contentious topic. Um, and so I think we should be charitable here to, as we come to grips with thinking about this topic. But to begin, there's two extremes that I think we should avoid and reject, but there's a range that I think we should embrace as healthy. And so the first extreme, the thing to avoid, is <coughs> biblicism. It's anti-subscription. We talked about biblicism last time. It's, and I know biblicism sounds good on the surface, but the way of biblicism that we're thinking about here is a biblicism that rejects really you know, any thoughts that even are born from Scripture. It's those who say there is no creed or confession but the Bible. Of course, though, that's a creed. 
Everybody has one. And the question is not whether or not some people subscribe to a confession when some people don't. The question is whether or not our confession is public and open to public scrutiny or whether they're private and whether they're protected from public scrutiny. But everybody has them. And all of us draw theological conclusions and bring theological baggage to the Bible. So we want to reject anti-subscriptionalism. That's not possible to have even. Uh, We are everybody, by nature of being made in the image of God, are confessional confessionalists. In some way, you know, confessionalism is inevitable. But the question is really, is it a public and good one or not? That's the question. Secondly, we want to reject what we might call absolute subscription. That is, we want to recognize that the Second London Baptist (laughs) Confession of Faith, along with all of the other good and helpful Reformed confessions, that they are ultimately a man-made document. Uh, They're not inerrant, right? We don't want to apply verbal plenary inspiration to the confession, but we do apply that to the scriptures themselves. Every single word and every single phrase has not been inspired by God so that you have to confess every jot and tittle of the confession. And that should be plain, right? Because the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is a modification of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration as well. And so we would reject both of those extremes, biblicism and a absolute subscription. They're both unhealthy choices. Now, what I think we should embrace as a church, as a healthy church, is a range between subscription or, excuse me, strict subscription on one side and then submission subscription on the other side. Strict submission on the one side essentially takes at face value the terminology of the confession. All the terminology that's used and adopts the confession but it doesn't require the adoption of every single word or every single phrase, but rather the adoption of every doctrine that's contained in the confession because they're biblical. It's a position that is committed to the whole body of doctrine. That would be strict subscription. Uh, the elders of a church would certainly fall here. <coughs> a submission to subscription, on the other side, is a position that says, I can affirm those matters that I understand and see in scriptures and agree to submit to the rest as I grow and study. So you may not understand all of it, but you may not fully understand some of it, or you may not even agree with every jot and tittle of it, but to have a subscription of submission is to say, as a member of this church, I won't actively oppose or undermine it. That you understand that this is what the elders are aiming to teach and we aim to be, as we aim to be faithful to the scriptures. It's not to say, it's to say at least two things. That one, in humility, I know I can still grow. And that perhaps by the scriptures, my own mind might be changed in time. How many of us here today, this afternoon, have at some point or another had something that we once believed about the Bible to be true, to be true, to be true of scripture, challenged and changed? I think all of us, right? I, I have, certainly. Uh, I'd have questions for you, if not, actually. You know, it's in humility, recognizing that maybe there are some things that I don't understand as well as I think I do. And so I'll wait and pray and study and grow and have my mind changed, if that's possible, if it's right, because on the essentials, there's agreement. And it's to say, secondly, that I'm eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But I don't need to have 100% agreement. I don't need to have strict subscription on every aspect of every doctrine in the confession so that I'm able to worship and work towards the declaration of the kingdom of God. That there's, ro- that there's room for disagreement and growth, and yet not for disunity. And so a subscription of submission or unity is to say, I may not understand it. I do know that I don't fully agree with it. I need time to consider to pray and to study and to think and to sit under the preaching of the word and the teaching of the elders. But even as I do, I will commit myself to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because the Lord Jesus is loved and preached here. It's to say I will not in any way actively oppose or undermine the confessional standards of this church as long as I'm a member of it. It's a confession of unity and and one that operates on a has to operate on a spectrum, has to operate on a range. 
which is to say that all members are committed as to the most fundamental level and as, and as at a most fundamental level to a submission of subscription, and then all elders are committed to a matured subscription that is a strict subscription, affirming the whole body of doctrine contained there in the confession because they understand that it is contained in scriptures. And there's a spectrum or a range in between. All different kinds of members in our church will find themselves at different points of that spectrum at any given time, depending upon where they are in their own knowledge or maturity. And many other factors would play into that as well. But it's to say that those who are primarily responsible for the teaching and preaching of the word, they would be explicit in their subscription. Because that's where, you know, that's where their conviction lies. But that same level of subscription would not be necessary for members. I mean, just think of a new believer, by chance. The man or woman who has just become a Christian. He has just converted. Perhaps he was an atheist before. But now he affirms that God is real and he wants and he knows that Christ is Lord and God. He knows the gospel. He's been coming to church for a little while and he wants to get baptized. He desires to get baptized. He, he must be baptized because he knows it's a command from, from his Lord and Savior to bless him. Now, does he know the, at that point, a former atheist coming to church for a few months is desiring baptism and and hungering for it and wanting it to happen, does he know all the ins and outs of all 32 points of doctrine in the confession? It's highly likely he does not. It's likely that mature believers in the church body are more sanctified and more familiar with Christian teaching and doctrine. Of course they are. Are there some doctrines that are harder and more difficult to to grasp for younger Christians who are less familiar with the word? Doctrines that are harder to embrace? Yeah, of course there are. That seems natural to me. When we become a Christian, we are sanctified by God. But that sanctification, in a sense, is of course is progressive. We're growing. And so of course there are some doctrines. It only is natural to think that some doctrines are harder to receive for younger Christians than older Christians. That it takes time knowing your Lord, knowing the faithfulness of your Lord. That's natural to think. And so a subscription at a healthy church, a healthy subscription, allows for growth. It allows for change and discussion and the searching of Scripture. It allows for Acts 17.11. Three, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice, that's not an individual act, is it? There aren't any solo Bereans. It's the church coming together, having received the word, and then examining the scriptures together and laboring in them, holding the scriptures in the highest place, in the highest regard, and then working from there. So there needs to be this range where, we, where, where people are able to work on the confession. We should expect it and certainly allow for it. So what we're saying when we re- receive and adopt the Second London Confession of Faith as our church confession, is we're not saying we expect every member to believe every single thing in it and confess every single thing in it. We're okay if you don't. If you're able to still work towards the, the end of preaching Jesus and seeing him proclaimed and glorified. Because that, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. If we want to embrace the historic confessions for the purpose of ensuring the clarity of what we teach, the unity of the church, and the protection against heresy and error, as well as a tool for discipling believers, then I, I believe that's our best way forward. We must have an eldership committed to the confession in a substantial manner. And then we must have a clearly identifiable membership who are fully aware of the church teaching and have humbly agreed to submit to it. And may our confession be used as a flood, to, as flood walls to guard against the swelling tide of theological, cultural, and moral de- uh, decay of our day. At the same time, May we be found behind that flood wall, feeding and nurturing the sheep for which Christ died, whether they be young in the faith or old in the faith, strong or weak, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we do thank you for the time we've had together this afternoon. Kind of a different afternoon, not quite a sermon with exhortations, although I think... I tried to sneak a few in there, Lord. I, 
I pray, Lord, that we would, with delight and joy, uh, be more doctrinal. That we see your glorious and beloved doctrines all throughout the pages of your word, being taught by the living word, our Lord and Savior, and being taught by the prophets and the apostles as well. And we pray, Lord, that as we pursue theology and doctrine, that it wouldn't just become a cold (laughs) head knowledge, Lord, but that it would fill our hearts with a warm love for you and for your people, and that your will would be done and that you would be glorified. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) All right, guys. um, Any questions? Anything I can try to clarify? For you, kind of a lot of information, I know. A little long after a potluck as well. I apologize for that. You were saying that all of us have our presuppositions. Yes. Just to clarify, you know, you're talking about, like, what we've already been convicted of, not like, not to be confused with presuppositionalism. Like, we have this... this sure. Yeah. yeah, so John's asking, there's a... a a philosophy or an apologetical method called presuppositionalism. That's not exactly what I'm talking about, but that, I mean, the idea behind that method is what I am talking about, that we all have presuppositions about the world and life and what God's word is, whether we know them or not. And so I think what it's important for us is to try to know what those are. And if we can know what those are, that helps us to think about scripture because we don't we, we don't want to think that we approach Scripture just as a blank slate. Because none of us are a blank slate. I mean, we all live in America. And that, we approach Scripture, let's say, for example, in a much different way than perhaps someone who's grown up in an Islamic nation would. And so we have these types of frameworks that exist that are there that we know or that we don't. But they do impact the way we look at God's Word. No questions? Comments? Yeah. To some of the people in our body, I mean, if they have a view like, well, can I join this church if we're going in this direction? And I, I thought it was helpful how you made a distinction between strict, strict subscription and what the elders are expecting here because there are some confessional churches that do you know, push strict subscription and yeah. that causes, you know, causes sin and error. I think. It does. It forces people to maybe lie yes. because they don't really do that. Uh, R. Scott Clark, who I really like, you know, he's a professor and a pastor in Southern California. He's a professor at Westminster. And I like him even despite all of his, you know, maybe some of his... Uh, to kingdom, that's some of my, uh, or his comments about Baptists, which he says, you know, Baptists can't be reformed. But he has a book on uh, confessionalism where he says that, you know, strict, there's a version of strict submission where the elders, the officers of the church, and the members all hold to every single part of it. And I, I just, again, that I think is helpful because then you could only allow, I think, really mature believers into membership. What about the new believer? They, they should have a place among us. As well. We really don't Yeah. This is it, and there's nothing else. Well, you know, and if I ever had Clark in a room, I would ask, why doesn't he affirm the original, the 1646 confession, instead of the one that was modified in the United States about marriage and stuff like that? And that kind of tones down some of the um, state authority as well. But because you know, there it's, it's changed, you know? And so a lot of times with those super strict confessional people, they'll say, you can't change it at all. I don't think we should change the Second London Confession at all. I think it's great. But I'm not saying that it's at the level of Scripture. You know? There has to be room for nuances, right? There has to, yeah. Yeah, yeah Steve? But, uh, you know, I guess I'm glad that we, we move, we're moving in a direction to where we can say, hey, this is our confession. I mean, we had the Baptist faith message, yeah. It was pretty broad. Now, I don't, I don't even know if there would be like a minimum agreeance to like maybe just joining the church, but would you say that there would be? Oh, we have a minimum. minimum. We have a minimum. Well, it's just that you're truly, as much as we can tell, converted. That, you know, so you would, you know, believe 
for example, the main things that it says about who God is, that he's triune, about who Christ is, as being the incarnate son of God, and you know, truly man and truly God. There are things that are essential that the Second London Confession that I think any Christian of any denomination could affirm. And those would be, I guess we had to say what is minimal, it would be those elements. So, uh, so you wouldn't include like the doctrine of grace and things like that? I don't think so, no. Um, the doctrines of grace are extremely important, but like for our friends who don't affirm the doctrine of grace, they usually aren't saying, well, it's you and God that cooperate for your salvation. They're still saying it's God who alone saves you. They just frame it in such a way where somehow they can't see that they're taking part of the credit for it. But with their mouth, they still say, no, 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 I have nothing to do with my salvation. It's all God and God alone. And for that, I'm thankful. You know, I, that's an inconsistency, I think. And I think maybe a bit of immaturity. And I think it's the natural human position, even, to think that we have some role to play, especially in our salvation. And so, I mean, if they've, so they've been taught well to a point so they, they don't say that, but yet in their explaining of it, by saying that faith precedes regeneration, they're saying, they're, they're doing it, but they're not seeing that for some reason. So I think it's just an immaturity issue. Over time, you're patient, you know. Yeah. That's a good question. But yeah, we wouldn't sit, we, so what we're not going to do at a membership meeting, if we're not going to open up, you know, the little, the book, then it'd be like, okay, do you agree with Article 1? Hey, Article 2. Out of 32. Yeah, yeah. You're, like, yeah. <laughs> you're so close. You know, that's not what we're going to do. Uh, you take it again in six months. Yeah. What we want to see in people is a genuine love for the Lord. And, you know, a genuine love for the Lord could be evident in a six year old. You know, it's, I, I, we would love to see that in six year old because God can do that. But I wouldn't expect a, you know, a six year old, an eight year old, or even a, you know, a 35-year-old who's only been a Christian for a few months to tell me all about the, the nature of God and like inseparable operations or the, the unity of the Godhead or you know, to talk, have an opinion about eternal subordination. I wouldn't expect a person like that to think about that, and that wouldn't keep you from being out of membership. But guess what? The Second London Baptist Confession does talk about all of those things, and so it can help you if you let, allow it to help you. Yes, Ben. Oh, nothing? Okay. I didn't raise my hand. You were making eye contact. You just hurt your eyes. All right. Thanks for the time, guys. Lord willing, we'll open it up um, next time when we're in this confession on the first chapter, which is on the scriptures. So look forward to that.